Coming up, it was another ho-hum NFL Sunday as I'll go over the winners and losers of Week 12. Michigan finally reached the top of Mount Ohio State and put themselves in great position to make it to the college football Final Four. Is it a foregone conclusion that they'll make it? MLB is moving and shaking as players are at new addresses, including the Mets and their Black Friday spending, bringing not one, not two, but three players onto their roster. And is Max Scherzer not too far behind? Can we expect more of this as the CBA expires on Wednesday? The Islanders' season has gone from bad to worse as the team has been struck by COVID. Is this a blessing or a curse? I'll have that as well as the NBA, some college basketball, and even a little golf. Where else are you going to get all this on one podcast? A jam-packed show lies ahead, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to. So your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Reels Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic and excellent spirits. Now that Thanksgiving has come and gone, as I'm sure you're sick of leftovers in the process, we can set our sights on the final month of the year as December is just two days away. Don't let up, people. Do not punt the rest of 2021 away and wait for 2022 to get started on whatever it is that's on your radar. Seize this moment or moments immediately. Make it a point to get moving and grooving towards those goals because we all know that time doesn't wait for anyone. And speaking of waiting, you won't have to wait any longer as I navigate you through the sports universe on all that's happening as this 
is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 226 episodes, I welcome you guys and gals back. It is a Monday, the final one of the month, November the 29th in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what's expected on this podcast is as follows. Lots of players in Major League Baseball have found new addresses, and the Mets have been smack in the middle of the hot stove. Now the discussion has turned to Max Scherzer, possibly making his way to Queens. What? I'll have all that's cracking in the MLB offseason as the frenzy to sign players before the CBA expires. And it remains fast and furious up until about midnight on December the 1st. So I'll have that, as well as the Islanders. So much for them returning home to their brand new arena after 13 games to start off the season on the road. Now there's been an outbreak of COVID throughout the team on top of losing four at home. Eight in a row overall. Is this a negative considering now that they've had this long losing streak or a rallying point for a slow start to the season? So I'll talk about that. As well as college football, congrats to Jim Harbaugh. The Michigan Wolverines, they finally did it. They slayed the Buckeye Dragon as they defeat Ohio State on Saturday. I'll break down another wild and crazy college football weekend as conference championship week has arrived. An update on all the various playoff scenarios later on in the podcast. I'll have that. NBA, of course, a little bit of golf, believe it or not. There was a match over the weekend, which I believe maybe a handful of you only watched. But I'll get into all that, including my hero and zero of the week. As the Thanksgiving weekend has finally concluded, and everybody was anticipating not only the beginning of the holiday season, but of course, any time that you look at That Thanksgiving Thursday, you think of the three things, as I mentioned last week. You think of family, you think of food, and of course, football. And you had three games. All right, the one in the middle was fascinating because you had two teams that looked like they were going in different directions, and now they're on a collision course to pretty much scratch and claw their way to the end of this regular season. And I'll get to that game in a minute. But another week in the NFL has been, I'll say, below average. And I get that I'm coming across as the guy that's just pounding on the league, that's pounding on the schedule week after week. And granted, last weekend you had a pretty interesting schedule. But as we now start to turn the corner, and we still have, believe it or not, there's still teams that have six more games left on the docket. And check the receipts. Going back to before the regular season, I was not a proponent and in the very small minority of wanting to have a 17-game regular season. It just extends it. I know for one more week, I know people are going to look at me and say, Jay Reels, relax. It's just one extra game. Nobody's going to really care. More football. Isn't that what we want at the end of the day? But now you have a scenario where you have bye weeks that are going to go on until the week after next. So once we clear week 14 and into 15, that's when we could say goodbye to the byes. And now with the playoff scenario starting to shape up and come into a little bit of focus, we still have to go through what almost seems like another half of a season left. And when we take a look at these games over the weekend, and granted that some of the matchups were intriguing, some of them were of note that you'd have to look at as far as the playoff picture is concerned. But as I take a look at the winners and losers before we go deep into that, It was a week with not a lot of separation and pretty much you're still trying to figure out what team or teams, I might add, 
or the ones that could be the last one standing as we get into January and, of course, the Super Bowl out at SoFi in the middle of February. Again, way too early to tell, but we still haven't seen those group of teams really take that step above to where you could really say, ah, these teams look like they're going to be the favorites to make it to the Super Bowl. So my winners of Week 12, I'm going to start off with the Buffalo Bills. Now, they had a big loss in the process, losing Tredavious White, their all-pro corner, out with an ACL injury that he suffered during the Thursday night game down in New Orleans. But the Bills, who had the putrid performances of weeks past, whether it was in Jacksonville, and of course the inexplicable game against the Colts, they bounced back in a big way, winning 31-6 there on Thanksgiving evening. Josh Allen, four touchdowns. He did throw a couple of picks. But the Bill offense seemed to be in gear. They look like they're going ahead into a not only a crucial stretch because they still have to play the Patriots twice, including a game next Monday night, which is by far one of the better games of the weekend. But here it is, Buffalo knowing that they had to right the ship, that this wasn't going to be a cruise control, just an easy landing for an AFC East title, considering everybody picked them not only to win a division, but to go to a Super Bowl, including yours truly. But at least for now, they were able to stabilize this little stretch here of turbulence, and now they can look ahead to these big matchups, especially with the Patriots and a couple others along the way, including Tampa, a trip down to the Panhandle later on in December. My winner number two, I'm going to give some love to the San Francisco 49ers. And the Niners, as we know, have had a tough year, just a year where a lot of people thought in a competitive NFC West that they would be up amongst the top one or two teams. Right now, they're currently third. But with that win yesterday at home against the Vikings, a team that they're going to need to worry about down the road, especially when it comes to tiebreakers scenarios before the game yesterday, well, they were able to do just that. And you could plug in no matter how many running backs. It's amazing to think that whether your name is Raheem Mostert, it could be Jay Reels. It's unbelievable how the Niners, especially with their offensive scheme and their line and how they're able to just pound the ball the way they have time after time after time, Did so again yesterday with the likes of Elijah Mitchell. Who? Yes, Elijah Mitchell, 133 yards. He paved the way. They had a big stop there late in the game where it was a one-score game at 34-26. And on a fourth and goal, right in the shadow of tying the game, Kirk Cousins with an incomplete pass there. And the Niners went on to win 34-26. Not sexy overall. Garoppolo's numbers weren't anything to write home about. The defense did just enough. In the process, Fred Warner, their quarterback on the defense, middle linebacker, had to leave the game, as well as Debo Samuel, who, as we all know, is their biggest offensive threat. MRIs today, we'll see what their status will be moving forward as they both suffered some key injuries. Warner, the hamstring, and Samuel had a groin. But the Niners have put themselves in good position. Granted, it's going to be at the bottom of the NFC because they're not going to compete for a division But the Niners live to see another week and will not have to worry about the Vikings and a tiebreaker scenario. So I had to give them some love and some shine as them being a winner of Week 12. And for my losers of the week, and there's only one, and this one's going to be a minute here, people, so bear with me. That distinction goes to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Embarrassed in Cincinnati yesterday, They were down 41-3 at one point. They ended up losing 41-10. 
the biggest loss in the Mike Tomlin era. Remember back in 2016, they lost 34-3 to the Eagles there in week two. But this one was an embarrassment from start to finish. The Bengals, think about this. This is all you need to know about the Steelers season and pretty much how the last couple of weeks have gone. Not only did the Bengals sweep the Steelers for the first time in 12 years, but it's the first time they won three in a row. Because remember, they won the Monday night game last year in Cincinnati. So they've now beaten the Steelers three times in a row for the first time since 1989-90. Has there been a changing in the guard? Still too early to tell, but with the way things are going in Pittsburgh at the moment and how they have just been pathetic on so many levels. Offensively, all right, you want to look at the game last week in SoFi where they put up 37 points, granted 27 in the fourth quarter thanks to a couple of big breaks, but they were still able to put up points and arguably the best game that Ben Roethlisberger had all year. But this offense has been in clogged toilet mode pretty much since the start. The defense, granted they got back T.J. Watt and Minka Fitzpatrick, but they were nowhere to be found on the field. And they still don't have Joe Hayden, not to say that Joe Hayden is circa 2011 with the Browns. But here it is, a Steeler team that were just laughed off the field to the point where Joe Mixon ran for 165 yards. And this defense, which is supposed to be the identity of the team, it's not the offense anymore. they just been run roughshod to the tune of 700 yards on the ground over the last three weeks to where you have to think to yourself, they're going to win another game this year, but there are people that are arguing whether or not the Steelers are are going to be lottery bound or probably in the top 10 when it comes to the NFL draft for 2022. And all I got to say about this performance here yesterday, as bad as it was, and shouts to my guy Jai, Brian Murray, as well as Risa Saslow, the only three Bengal fans that I've known throughout my entire existence. And they deserved it because the Steelers were just beyond putrid. But now you have to wonder whether or not that this team is going to be able to pull themselves off the mat to have any type of respectability because what we've seen here over the last three weeks has been inexcusable, especially defensively. And as I said, the offense has done nothing pretty much for the whole year. And I don't expect it to improve when they have to play Baltimore in their building next Sunday, a short week where they go to Minnesota. After that, Tennessee at home, but they're falling apart. Then they have to go to Kansas City before playing Cleveland and then to go to Baltimore to wrap up the year. So the schedule does not look or bode well for the Steelers to make any kind of run. And I have to say this, people, get ready, Steelers fans, because I had to endure... Almost two decades between Terry Bradshaw and Ben Roethlisberger. In fact, it's about 22 years if you think about it off the top of my head. To where we are looking at the final games of a career of Big Ben. This is it. The era is coming to a close. We are watching his final few games. And that's not to say that this is a guy that We have to just put out the pasture. We know that his best days are well behind him. And I know that I'm going to enjoy these final few games despite the fact that my eyes may bleed in the process because of how pathetic this team has been. But get ready for some dark ages if the Steelers do not make a big offseason move or if they, by chance, get lucky in the draft to where a quarterback falls in their lap a la Mac Jones in New England. Because what we've seen here 
has just been beyond hideous. And yesterday was indicative of that because for them to lose to the Bengals, okay, fine. But to be embarrassed and was said to a man, whether your name was TJ Watt, whether your name was Cam Hayward, the coach, the quarterback, from top to bottom, nobody gets a pass. And now I have to subject myself over the next few weeks and playoffs, forget about it, to break out the old Jim Moore playoffs. I mean, I, I, I'm not even thinking about that. I'm just thinking about some respectability, knowing that they still have the Ravens twice and the other teams that I mentioned on the schedule, which is by far the hardest in the league, although Baltimore is a close second to when it comes to tough schedules down the stretch. But they just embarrassed myself as a fan, and not only that, but the whole organization. And it just made you think for a moment that dark days could lie ahead with this team. We know that this team is going to be all about the defense moving forward. Because the offense, granted that they have some good wide receivers and a running back that they drafted in the first round from Alabama that we can hang our hat on. And maybe even a tight end with Friar Muth. Who knows? It looks like he's going to be a very good player. But with no offensive line to boot, a quarterback that Mason Rudolph, Dwayne Haskins, those guys aren't the answers. It's going to really make you yearn for those days early on in the tenure of Ben Roethlisberger and the coaching career of Mike Tomlin for those days because I do not see any type of light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to a Steeler team moving forward after this year. So let me blow through this schedule here the past week. And I don't want to hear, I've heard people, another wild and crazy week in the league. Oh, this is another NFL Sunday that made you just the witching hour and it made you just think, This is why it's so unpredictable. No, no, nonsense. Because let's just go to Thursday for starters. Chicago, Detroit, they needed a field goal late in the game. And hopefully Detroit wins the game at some point, you would think. I mean, it's they've come close so many times, including the Steeler game, which was a tie. But that was one that made you cough up your stuffing and your mashed potatoes, etc. We talked about the Buffalo-New Orleans game. Nothing really to discuss there. The Vegas and Dallas Cowboy game. Now, I was in and out of this game, of course, when you're at in-laws or just with family, friends, etc. It's tough to really hone in and focus in on every play or every snap. But the big thing that came out of this game was all the penalties, 14 on each team. Come on, 28 penalties in a game. And it's just pathetic to think that the officiating, and I haven't really talked about the officiating that much Despite this being a disappointing year or a very subpar NFL season, I haven't even laid one finger on the officials as far as their impact on the games and how these outcomes or just look at the game there on Thursday afternoon. All the pass interferences, we understand that the Raiders won in overtime and it came down to the wire. But is this going to be the rest of the way, we know in the postseason they're going to swallow the whistle because we cannot see laundry all over the field left and right determining what these playoff outcomes are going to be. Just can't. But then you had your Sunday games and am I going to talk about Miami beating Carolina? Now granted they've won four in a row and they're making a little bit of a threat to my over-under pick which was nine and a half. I think it was nine and a half. I got to double check that. If it's nine and a half, I'm good. But as we look here, the Dolphins at the beginning of the year, if you didn't hear my over-under numbers, nine and a half. So they got to get to 10. They're not going to get to 10. But they beat 
and beat up Cam Newton to the point where he was benched. They bring in P.J. Walker. Wasn't much of a factor. No shock there. But the Dolphins have played well here and they've rebounded after that 1-7 start to now they're 5-7. and seven. Are they going to be a threat to the AFC playoff picture? You don't think so, but who knows? With the extra game, maybe they could try to attempt to run the table. They still have to play the Jets again. They have the Giants coming into their building this week. All right, they have the Patriots, the last game of the season. They're done with Buffalo, but a lot of their schedule is pretty easy. I believe they have Jacksonville too. So who knows? Maybe they can make up some ground and sneak in through the back door as a seven seed in the AFC. Remains to be seen. But Cam Newton is done. I'm sure he's going to play again this year, but he was shot last year as we saw in New England. And please, that performance yesterday, five for 21, 90 something yards, where one pass play was 64 yards, two interceptions. Cam is ready to be put out the pasture as far as his starting and playing career is concerned. Am I going to talk about the Jets beating Houston 21-14? Am I going to talk about Atlanta beating Jacksonville by the same score? Or even the Eagles and Giants to where Jalen Hurts threw three interceptions, his numbers were awful, and it makes you think if you're an Eagle fan, I get it that he's dynamic with his legs, He's able to move the chains. Nobody's going to confuse him with Lamar Jackson in that regard. But at the same time, he has been effective. But his passing is definitely one that when the jury is out, it's going to come back and say, "Uh uh-uh, he's not starting quarterback material. But the killer was that final play to where it was fourth and I believe 10, somewhere around the 27-yard line. And he throws a pass over the middle right at the goal line to Jalen Rager, who also dropped a potential touchdown on that same drive. What happens? The ball was smacked right in his hands and he ended up, ended up dropping it. Thankfully, they were able to get a mulligan with Devontae Smith and you would think that he's going to be this big pro. But Jalen Rieger, wow. We understand we can look at those stats for Jalen Hurts and yes, it does look terrible. But nobody's going to think about that last pass that should have been caught and would have given him an opportunity to punch it in for the go-ahead touchdown or really the game tying and then, of course, with the extra point. But that's pretty much the highlight of that game because other than that, nothing home to write about. Also, some of the other key games, well, I'll get to them in a second because the Chargers lose in Denver as Denver continues to keep themselves afloat not only just in the AFC West but also, obviously, with the whole conference as a whole. But Justin Herbert, although he threw for over 300 yards, did not play well. And Denver was pretty much in control of this game. And we all know that mile high, and especially with a young team like the Chargers, that's Chargers have always had their troubles in Denver, even going back to the days of Phillip Rivers. So Denver prevails again against the Charger team. Now, as far as some of the bigger games, I didn't watch the Rams and Packers only because I was so disgusted and frustrated with the Steeler game. I didn't really want to pay attention to that. I needed to decompress and get away from football for a couple of hours, but obviously I stayed on top of it. And pretty much what you need to know is that third quarter is when the game pretty much blew open. I know the Rams came back and tried to make it a game right before halftime, but after that, it was all Packers. And Stafford throws another pick six. What do you expect? Rams in a big spot do not show up. Odo Beckham Jr., for those out there who care, got his first touchdown in a Ram uniform, but certainly fell short as the Packers pretty much cruise to a 36-28 game, and it wasn't as close as the score indicated, even though at halftime it was 20-17 pack. So the Aaron Rodgers-led, who had the toe issue, 
where it's fractured, but he could still play on it. A lot of the rumors about the COVID toe, which I don't really care or really even know about. But anyway, the Packers go ahead and beat the Rams, and the Rams right now are going to be in the playoff hunt, but not for division as they're two and a half games behind the Arizona Cardinals. Also, Tampa and Indianapolis, this was a very intriguing game as Indy built a 24-14 lead. Then Wentz, in typical Carson Wentz fashion, ends up throwing a pick deep in Buccaneer territory. They turned that around, punched that in the end zone. They were able to take the lead late 31-24, although the Colts did come back. Jonathan Taylor had the big game in Buffalo the week prior, was slowed down pretty much in the first half, but he was able to get the engine going. They tied the game, but then the Buccaneers late behind Leonard Fournette and four touchdowns. The last one being, I believe, about half a minute to go as the Buccaneers get out of Dodge with a 38-31. Very impressive victory. Tampa, who does not have Antonio Brown. They did get Gronk back a couple of weeks ago. But Tampa, who's kind of going through this little eh, up and down kind of stretch to where they haven't really been crisp. They have not really played the way the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have been known to play, especially under Tom Brady. But now, getting that victory under their belt was huge as they're able to now forge ahead where the Colts had a great opportunity to be one game back of the Tennessee Titans in the AFC South, but they weren't able to do so with that loss because Tennessee up in New England lose 36-13. The game was... Blown open by the touchdown there on the sideline, tiptoeing Kendrick Bourne to make it 26-13, and it was pretty much cruise control from there on out. Mac Jones, 310 yards in the air, doesn't do too much. A lot of these are just short passes. He's not stretching the field by any stretch of the imagination, but they are doing just enough defensively. I get it. The Patriots, you got to give them credit. I still have to see more, and I know I brought that up last week, and the reason why I say that is because the Patriots, okay, they beat Tennessee, all right, they beat Cleveland a few weeks back, and I'm not trying to say they got to beat the powerhouses of the National Football League, but again, I need to see Mac Jones in a spot where they're down 10 and not playing from in front, and granted that they had the defense, and it's a pretty much no-name defense. This isn't your uncle's Patriot team of Teddy Bruschi, Richard Seymour, Ty Law. Go down the list. They're pretty much a bunch of no-names. We know about Devin McCourty, obviously. Whether your name is Kyle Duggar. Obviously, Dante Hightower, who wasn't there last year due to COVID, but he's been an anchor there on that defense. But it's a team that doesn't have a lot of household names, not a lot of Pro Bowl-type players, but we all know it's Belichick in the system. And I do give them their credit. But again, I still need to see more. I need to see this in January and if they even get into February. Because you would think the clock would strike 12 on Mac Jones. No matter how they simplify that offense, he's still a rookie. And I'm sure, just like you can say for any quarterback, I get it. But with him being so young and even though ahead of the curve here, now that his season is 8-4 and four, where it started off 2-4, two and, two and four, again, I still need to see the Patriots, even their defense too. Because remember, two years ago, they started off 8-0 and everybody wanted to compare them to the 85 Bears. And what happened? They fizzled out in the playoffs against the Tennessee Titans in which their last visit was in Foxborough the night that they concluded the Tom Brady era in that wildcard game. And Tennessee, they're still Jekyll and Hyde. 
I don't even know how to forecast this team. And I get it. They're not with Derrick Henry and they don't have Julio Jones. So they're not at full strength. But Ryan Tannehill, he has just looked awful these last two weeks as evidenced by the numbers that he's put up. And again, I can't trust Tennessee as far as I could throw him. The AFC is as wide open as it could possibly be. And that also includes the Baltimore Ravens who had an ugly game themselves last night. And Lamar Jackson, if anybody wanted to put him in the MVP category for 2021, that last night will just be thrown right in the wastebasket and lit into fire because four interceptions. Now the Browns didn't do anything either. Baker Mayfield was pretty much running for his life and we understand he's compromised, he's hurt, but still just a terrible performance by the Browns and the Ravens did just enough to win that game yesterday, 16-10, Sunday night, NBC. But as I said, the AFC, take a name out of a hat and if that team goes to a Super Bowl, would you be surprised? Even Denver at this point. At least they have a defense, they have a little bit of an identity and I don't believe in Denver either. So don't think i am got my orange pom-poms out for the Broncos because I don't. But that's the NFL in a nutshell and particularly the AFC this year. Unpredictable, a little below average and this is what we got. And six more weeks to go before we could even think about the postseason and get ready for a run to Super Bowl 56. Because other than that, no other games to really discuss. I pretty much touched on them all. And tonight, to cap off your week 12, woo, you got a barn burner in the nation's capital between the Seattle Seahawks against the Washington football team. And as we look ahead to the schedule next week, as I mentioned, the game of the week, well, first off, your Thursday night game is Dallas at New Orleans. And now Dallas has been hit with some COVID issues with their coaching staff, and now their right tackle's been affected. Who knows if that's going to spread through the rest of the team. That's something we're going to have to keep an eye on here over the course of the next couple of days, as again, they have a Thursday night game down in the Superdome. But your game of the week is New England at Buffalo, and that's Monday night. So you're going to have to wait a week from this evening in order to watch that matchup, and that's going to be highly anticipated. And let's see, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, Let me see what New England does here in this matchup because if it was at home, I'd say, okay, the crowd, familiar surroundings, et cetera. But let me see Mac Jones, and you know that's going to be a hostile environment for a rookie quarterback. Let me see how he performs under those lights Monday night against the Bills. And I'm not making the Bills out to be the 90s Bills that went to all those Super Bowls, but this is going to be a true test for the rookie. So let's see what happens there. But here's your stretch of games. Tampa at Atlanta, Arizona, Chicago, Chargers at Cincinnati, that's a good game, Minnesota, Detroit, the Giants at Miami, the Eagles at the Jets, so back-to-back weeks for the Eagles coming up the turnpike to play at MetLife, Indianapolis at Houston, Washington at Las Vegas, Jacksonville at Los Angeles, the Rams that is, San Francisco at Seattle which was flexed out of this Sunday night game to put Denver at Kansas City, which is at least a little bit more respectable, but still, you're not going to get crazy about that game. And your 425 game is Baltimore at Pittsburgh. For everything I talked about with the Steelers earlier, is there going to be any last hurrah here or any respectability? Remains to be seen, but it's certainly not going to be Baltimore-Pittsburgh circa 2008, 2010, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, or whatever you want to call it, but definitely it's going to be a far cry from those games, you would think. Although it's always tooth and nail, 
biting, scratching, clawing when it, these two teams match up. So we'll see what happens there. And the bye weeks in the NFL, Cleveland, Green Bay, Tennessee, Carolina, you still have two more weeks of buys before you get rid of them. So uh, the interminable season continues here with the National Football League. And a couple of quickies before we move on to the college football circuit, which has been fascinating and has blown away the NFL. I can't believe I'm actually saying that, but I'll get to the college football weekend in a minute. Couple of notes. The Giants fired Jason Garrett after that putrid Monday night performance, and certainly yesterday, they only put up 13 against an Eagle team, but Jason Garrett is the fall guy for everything that's gone wrong with the Giants, especially offensively over the last few weeks. And is there any surprise? Somebody had to take the axe, unfortunately, and why the Giants signed Jason Garrett after that tenure in Dallas for all those years is beyond me, but the Giants are clueless, especially the higher-ups there, John Mara, etc., So they got to figure out and navigate these final few weeks of football where we all know it's going to lead to absolutely zero. Another top 10 draft, you would think, even with the win yesterday against the Eagles. Also, the situation with Everson Griffin, who experienced a person that was intruding his home, or so it was, to where he actually fired a shot. And we know that he's been sitting out this year due to some mental health issues but he's in good care right now and getting the care that he needed. So sadly, it came to the forefront to where he felt that he was being attacked from the outside in, in his home in suburban Minneapolis. So obviously wishing him a speedy and healthy recovery to the defensive lineman. And then the Hall of Fame list came out where the first-time eligibles noted Andre Johnson, the former Houston Texan wide receiver. DeMarcus Ware, the Cowboy and Denver Bronco defensive end. Or linebacker, I should say. They were among 26 semifinalists in total. They'll be trimmed to 15 by sometime next month. Other names on that list. Anquan Bolden, Devin Hester, Robert Mathis, Steve Smith, Vince Wolfwork. Also, Jared Allen, Rondé Barber, Eddie George. The reason why I bring this up is because you know how I'm much I love to talk about the Hall of Fame candidacy for some of these players. Now, Andre Johnson played on a ton of bad teams, and we get that a plethora of wide receivers have made it into the Hall over the last five to ten years because that's how the game has evolved, especially over the last decade and a half. But to me, Johnson was a dominant wide receiver. He's a Hall of Famer. DeMarcus Ware, same. He was a dominant and disruptive pass rusher in his day, mostly with the Cowboys, but then later on winning a Super Bowl with the Broncos. And other guys, Anquan Bolden, is he a guy? He has the numbers, but and he's had big years. He has. But again, first time, I don't think he's going to make it. I like Steve Smith to make it to the Hall of Fame. There's another receiver. Diminutive, but had a ton of heart, mostly with Carolina, and obviously in his final days against or with the Baltimore Ravens. Jared Allen, very good and dominant pass rusher in his own right, but is he a Hall of Famer? These are some of the things that I'll look at as we get closer when they announce that the day before the Super Bowl and when they cut the list down to 15, we'll talk about it then. So I just wanted to put it on everybody's radar that you know I will bring it up later on down the road. Now let me get to college football because this has been as unexpected, as unpredictable as it could possibly be. But we have to start off and we've touched on him, the school, The team, of course, that being the Michigan Wolverines, 
And I mentioned this last week on the podcast that this was a team, if they were ever going to win and finally get to the top of the Buckeye Summit, this was it. If for whatever the reason they weren't going to beat Ohio State this year, then they were never going to beat them. Especially under the watch of Coach Jim Harbaugh. But as we saw the opening drive, get to pay dirt. And I was in and out of this game. I was running around, but I kept close tabs on it. But when it was all said and done, Hassan Haskins, five touchdowns, a convincing win against Ohio State in the flurries, in the gray skies, 115,000 strong at the big house. And the win was just huge on so many levels, but two in particular. One was finally getting the piano off the back of Jim Harbaugh, and of course for the administration overall. They have been beaten to a pulp over the last five years by Ohio State. They were long overdue to get this type of win. It makes it even more sweeter because that means Ohio State is out when it comes to the college football playoff now that they have two losses. And they have everything in front of them to where they could go ahead and win a Big Ten championship, which I'll get to in a minute, and then possibly, if they do that, make it to a Final Four to be in the mix for the national championship come New Year's Eve. But also the other thing on the flip side, Ohio State had these offensive outbursts over the last five to six weeks to where they put up over 50 against Indiana. They put up 50 against Michigan State or over 50 against them. And the same with Purdue that they had to come back down to earth. Now, mind you, I didn't think that they were going to be beat the way they were. I thought it was going to be a little bit more competitive, a little bit close. But as it was, this was Michigan's time to shine, and rightfully so, and congratulations. Now, granted, they are not out of the woods yet, though. Because they could rejoice all they want. They could say, ah, finally, we've done it. We don't have to worry about Ohio State. They're not going to be part of the playoff mix. Now it's all about Michigan. They still have to beat Iowa in a Big Ten championship where Wisconsin was upset by Minnesota because a lot of people thought Wisconsin was going to be that team to represent the Big Ten West to play against Michigan in the championship game. But now you have Iowa, and Iowa's had a very good year. They suffered those back-to-back losses. If you recall, Purdue was the first loss. Remember, they started their season where they were undefeated, and I believe they were ranked number two in the nation. And a lot of people thought, even with Iowa, eh, we still got more football to be played. This is a team that we can't really take too seriously. They can't really score a ton of points. And then we saw what happened there, like I mentioned in that Purdue game. And then the week after, they go up against Wisconsin and they get spanked to the tune of 27-7. to And then with Iowa and the way they've bounced back to the point where now they could go ahead and play not only in this Big Ten championship, but maybe even put themselves in the mix for a college football playoff. But then you got to remember, they have two losses. So that alone is one storyline that could be intriguing because Michigan now, even though they climbed that mountain, the job is far from done. In order to make it stick, they have to win this game Saturday against the Hawkeyes. Because imagine if they go ahead and lose that game not only will their national championship hopes or their college football playoff hopes be dashed, but you can't even relish the fact that you've beaten Ohio State because if you lose to Iowa, it was all for naught. Yes, I get it. You finally 
were able to slay that dragon. You were finally able to overcome after so many years of getting close to beating them and then just being taken to the back of the woodshed by the Buckeyes. But no, now you got to make this sucker stick. You got to make this sucker to the point where you put yourselves in a position to get to a national championship. No ifs, ands, buts, and maybes about it. That's the goal. And if they fall short, oof, man. I don't even know what I'll say next week if that's the case. Because they cannot, by any chance, lose that game next week to Iowa. And let's say if Iowa does win, again, that's not going to thrust them into the college football playoffs by any stretch. Now, that will also add another wrinkle if that were to be the case because then you'll have the teams like Notre Dame, Oklahoma State. You want to throw in Baylor, you could throw them in too. Forget about Ohio State, they're done. You can't even think about them right now. But then it does leave the opportunity, and especially if Georgia beats Alabama because does Alabama make it in with a two-loss record on their ledger? And Alabama, as we've seen here, and I'll segue to them, Alabama has not been Alabama despite the fact that they've been winning games ever since they lost to Texas A&M. But now they've gone through this stretch to where they, yeah, they beat Arkansas and obviously beat Auburn here to the point where they were shut out the first three quarters of the game. And they had to win in four overtimes, including a touchdown with 24 seconds left to go to where Bryce Young, who for all intents and purposes will probably be your Heisman Trophy winner, to where he had to bail out his team to get a tie to push it into overtime. And then they were able to go ahead after a bunch of a couple of field goals exchanged and then obviously the two-point conversions being made to where they were able to escape with a 24-22 victory. And now we'll have the matchup against Georgia in an SEC championship game to where will Alabama even be in the game, let alone win it? I'll have to say this right now, and I know that this may be almost sacrilege or maybe blasphemous to use a better word I'll be shocked if Alabama wins this game and I get it they have a quarterback that's been rolling that their offense although it's not going to be compared to the team's past especially when it comes to their wide receivers but I'd be floored if they win this game now I'm not going to say George is going to win 41-17 although would I be shocked if that's the case I wouldn't But if Alabama is within one score in the fourth quarter, I can see Georgia playing tight. I can see Georgia spitting a bit. We've seen Georgia spit the bit in the past against Alabama, whether it was in conference championship games or even national title games. And you know those ugly ghosts will rear its head if it's 27-24 Georgia with 11 minutes to go and Alabama has the ball. I could definitely see that. But just with the way they've played not only offensively, but defensively, and they've played better defensively over this stretch here. But Georgia, as we've seen, they've just obliterated these opponents. And granted, it's Georgia Tech and Georgia Southern, especially of in the last few weeks. But Georgia knows that they could put an end to Alabama's championship quest by beating them and beating them badly Saturday down at the Mercedes-Benz Dome 
in Atlanta. But now, if you have Alabama lose, because if Alabama wins, they're going to be in. And Georgia's going to be in no matter what they do. Even if they get blown out 56-0, they're in the national title scope. But as far as who will be that fourth team, especially if Iowa wins, and let's just say Alabama also loses, because you're going to have Georgia, you're going to have Cincinnati, and Cincinnati right now, they could just put their feet up. They don't have to worry about anything. They've pretty much played their season. They're in great shape. I get it that they still have to play Houston. They're in Cincinnati, which will pretty much be in their home environment. So you don't expect Houston to go up in there and just all of a sudden upset a team that's been undefeated all year. But if you have Georgia and Cincinnati are your two shoe-ins, who are the other two teams that are going to creep up and be a part of this national championship Final Four? Obviously, the first team that comes to mind is going to be Notre Dame. Notre Dame, we know they lost to Cincinnati. And if Notre Dame does win, you would think that they're not going to be a three seed. The country does not want to see Notre Dame-Cincinnati Part 2. Chances are they'll be a four seed and they'll go up against Georgia in one of the semifinal games. And then the other, you'd have to say, is it going to be Oklahoma State? And they beat Oklahoma the other day to where Lincoln Riley, the former Oklahoma coach, that's right, former, now will take the job at USC. So Oklahoma is pretty much done with their season no matter what bowl that they get at this point. But for Okie State, in a very good fourth quarter as they were able to upend the Sooners and now are looking ahead to see what they could do as far as get themselves. And they're going to play Baylor and that's going to be a very low-key under the radar. And I say that only because people are going to look at the Georgia and Alabama game And obviously, they're also going to look at the Michigan-Iowa game, which will be the primetime game come Saturday night. But Baylor and Oklahoma State kick off the college football Saturday, high noon, 11 a.m. local, down in Jerry's World, AT&T Stadium. And if Oklahoma does prevail, and you would think that if both Iowa and Alabama lose, they could be thrust into one of those four spots. And you would think with Notre Dame, Cincinnati, and Georgia. Now let's wait to see how it all unfolds. I'm not going to sit here to say that if those four teams were to represent in the college football semifinals, that a lot of people are going to say, oh, it's going to be boring, it's going to be terrible, it's going to be Georgia in a cakewalk to a national title. Well, Thankfully, we won't have to see Alabama if they lose. We won't have to see Ohio State. We won't have to see, obviously, Clemson's long gone in the picture. All the complaints have been over the last, especially four or five years, we've seen the same teams play in the Final Four, and it's been sickening because we want to see something else, and now we may have an opportunity to have a whole different playoff scenario, and then you're probably going to get complaints from a certain faction of the country to say, oh, geez, these games, I can't stand them. I'd rather see Alabama there. I'd rather see Ohio State, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Ah, give me a break. Can't win either way. I hope that both Alabama and no offense to the Michigan team, I have nothing against them, but let's see if Iowa does win. 
what team's going to make it there? And can you imagine if Baylor beats Oklahoma State? Does Baylor deserve to be in the Final Four? You could argue that. That's why this college football season has been riveting, to say the least, for me. And everybody knows, over the last few years, I've been into the college football a lot more than I have, especially as a boy, teenager, and young adult. But I can't get enough of it. I'm just surprised how everything from week to week, the college football landscape, especially at the top, has just been topsy-turvy and it's upended one week to the next. I mean, how could you not follow this? How could you not get into this? So college football has another big weekend ahead of them. And you can even look at the matchup Friday night, Oregon and Utah. Now, Oregon has two losses, so they're not going to make it to the Final Four either. And I'm sure they're going to want to exact some revenge to Utah because remember, they were the ones that pretty much torpedoed their season about nine days ago. So between that, the 12 noon, Baylor, Oklahoma State, 4 o'clock, you have Georgia and Alabama. Sprinkle in Houston at Cincinnati at 4 where nobody's going to watch, but then you have Michigan and Iowa at 8. Just a fascinating Saturday of college football ahead. And I can't wait to talk about it a week from today. You also have another coaching hire in college football where Billy Napier, the former Raging Cajun Louisiana coach, will now be down in the swamp in Gainesville to man the Florida Gators. Said that he was humble to be coach. Let's see if he could bring them back to any prominence, especially not only just in the SEC, but throughout the country. So with Dan Mullen being let go about a week or uh, 10 days ago, your new coach there will be Billy Napier. So we'll see what that regime will be like come next fall. All right, still have a lot to do here, people. Uh, listen, I'm about, what, 40-some-odd minutes in, and I still got to get into the NBA a little bit there. The Islanders with COVID. Oh, geez. Their season has just been off the rails. Also, some golf. The match between Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka for the three people that watched it. i throw in my two cents about that. But I have to switch gears here to get in tune with Major League Baseball and the hot stove that has been more than what I've ever could have imagined because everything that has taken place especially over the last week and now that we're less than 48 hours away from baseball armageddon to where the collective bargaining agreement will expire as i've said time after time the long cold hard winter that lies ahead between the players and the owners as far as hammering a deal so there would be baseball come opening day next year I'll put that on the back burner for now, but on the hot stove, the front burner, and shockingly, surprisingly, a New York team has been front and center wheeling and dealing. And no, it's not even the Yankees. It is the Mets. Black Friday came and went where Steve Cohen said, I'm breaking out the checkbook, the credit card, maybe some stocks that I had from my days on Wall Street. Who knows? But the Mets may not have made the sexy move or the sexiest moves, but they've made some very stable and have upgraded their team quite considerably. They started that off by bringing in Eduardo Escobar, who had a very good year with Arizona and Milwaukee. They also bring in Mark Hanha to play the outfield, who was with Oakland. 
guys that have put up some numbers. Kenha is supposed to be a very good defensive center fielder or defensive outfielder, excuse me, because I'm going to get to their new center fielder in a moment. But you figure he's probably going to play either left or right field, remains to be seen. Kenha, that is. And then the apple of the Mets eye, and it's been low key, but I know they've been dying for a center fielder for the longest time. And a lot of Mets fans, including myself, thought that by bringing in a guy like Starling Marte, would be just paramount up the middle to where you have James McCann as your catcher, Francisco Lindor as your shortstop, who knows second base, Javi Baez, and we'll get to that in a minute. But now your center fielder installing Marte, four years, $78 million, had nothing but glowing things to say about the organization, how this team could go to a World Series. This is one of the reasons why I've come here, etc. All right, Starling, red carpet, blue and orange, let's go. But now this also means the end for Michael Conforto. Also the potential end for Javi Baez, who now even the Tigers have gotten into the mix as far as maybe bringing Baez into the Motor City. And then I haven't even gotten to the reports about the Mets offering Max Scherzer a $40 million annual contract for about three to four years and I think that's the stickling point right now as to how many years this deal will be and I have mixed feelings about it and I don't want to say too much now only because it's not official but with all the talks and maybe all of the smoke that's being blown into Queens as far as Scherzer being part of this rotation is it an upgrade? I'd be stupid to say no But my concern is the years. It's not even the money. Scherzer's, what, 37 years old? And we understand a lot of miles on that arm. And over the last couple of years, he sustained some injuries to where he's starting to break down a little bit. That is my only concern. I'll just leave it at that. Once the deal is official, I'm sure you don't have to wait till next week or go on any of my social media accounts to get my take on it. But if they bring in someone like Scherzer... Man, I know the Mets mean business, but that would be a shock to the system to all Mets fans. And if Jacob DeGrom could be just healthy, forget about him having to be what he was in the first half of last season, but just have him healthy with him and Scherzer at the top of that rotation. Jeez, how could you not love that? But in the process... As I mentioned before, with Conforto, he's going to be gone with the latest acquisitions to the outfield. Baez, that remains to be seen. Talks are still open, but what are you going to give Baez? Considering Marcus Simeon, formerly of the Toronto Blue Jays, just signed a seven-year, $175 million deal with the Texas Rangers. So you know that that's going to be the baseline for any contract when it comes to Baez. And are the Mets going to shell that out on top of potentially $120 million to Scherzer? Now, as it was, the Mets looked like they were going to have former Met Steven Matz back in the fold, but Steve Cohen, there he goes, out to Twitter to say that his agent, Matz's agent, was unprofessional and didn't like the way the negotiations were handled. If you ask me, 
his agent did, did us a favor because no offense to Steven Matz. We've seen that movie before and I don't think he would have been as productive as he was early on in his Met tenure. So to me, they saved 40-something million there and if that 40 million is going to go towards Scherzer, that's a no-brainer. Even with his age, even with the miles on his arm, even with the health, but again, it's the years, people. Just think about the years. If it was me, I give him two and a player option. Take it or leave it. That'd be me, though. But uh, that's why I'm not a GM. But again, you don't want to be stuck with a contract that four for 160 and then maybe not 2022, but 2023 starts to break down and then 2024, he's a shell of his old self and then you still got another year on top of that where you're paying him $40 million. That's what I mean when it comes to the contract. It's not about the money. It's the length. And then the Mets also lose Aaron Loop in the process. He goes to Anaheim two years to $17 million. And you know what? Maybe that's a good thing because if he would have come close to what he did last year in the Met uniform, then obviously it's a steal. But watch, he'll go to Anaheim. His ERA will be in the mid to high threes. He won't get big outs and big spots. And when he was in a Met uniform, his ERA was under one and he was pretty much the only guy that was reliable out of that bullpen last year. And then you could also probably say goodbye to Marcus Stroman. And I know he's been chirping a lot through Twitter in these days, saying whatever it is about his contract, his worth, his sacrificing. God bless him. Understandably and rightfully so, but if Scherzer's going to be part of this team, you can forget about Stroman even coming close to getting his old locker back in Flushing. But you got to be impressed with what the Mets have done. And to me, there's still a lot of work to be done because now you lose loop. Who's going to be in the bullpen? You still have to address that rotation. I get you bringing back Taiwan Walker and guys like that, David Peterson's of the world, but still, I still think they need some help. And having Baez back at second base would also be critical because the Mets need athletes. They need players. They don't need guys that are just going to be feast or famine. And we understand with Baez, he is pretty much that when you think about it. But for the... 50-some-odd games that he played as a Met, he was actually pretty consistent. He hit almost 300. He hit nine home runs. His glove was stellar. Yeah, we know about the thumbs down and, yeah, some of the strikeouts and the base-running blunders, but we all know for one terrible base-running blunder that he may have, he has three out of his back pocket that you just are mind-blown by what he does, whether it's his feet, his hands. I mean, the guy is a baseball savant. So even though, Met fans, we can rejoice a little bit and say, wow, and this is without Scherzer, but there's still a lot of work to be done in my eyes, and that's not including who the hell is going to manage this team next year. Have we forgotten about that? So that's what you have there with the Mets, and with some of the other signings that we've seen here, the big one with the Rays and Wanda Franco, and it's very smart and wise on their part to do that because... We know that the Rays, as successful as they've been here over the last three or four years, they have a player where the fan base of about 256 could hang their hat on. And this is a guy that you don't have to worry about come his arbitration years or even as he gets closer to the free agency, you got to worry about him being jettisoned to go to whether the Bronx or Boston, L.A., Philadelphia, etc. Now they have their guy who's only played 74 games in the major leagues 
with an 11-year contract, $182 million, which is potentially could be up to $223 million. Kudos to the Rays, but there is one caveat in all of it. As great as the signing was, as smart as it was, I mean, think about it. The Padres signed Fernando Tatis Jr. to, what was it, 13 for 330, whatever it was. And Franco's supposed to be better than this guy. And he's a switch hitter to boot. But the one caveat is, is that there is not a no trade clause. So you can see it. His contract, I'm sure, is backloaded, and I don't know the details of it, but you can see that once you get to year four, five, six, seven, when he's probably going to make an upwards of 20 to $25 million, they could say, we're going to cut bait. We'll bring back a boatload of prospects, whomever that may be at that time, but we could restock our farm system. We could get back a player similar or close to Franco's ilk based on his potential. But as we all know, they're never going to get back anything in return, especially if this kid turns out to be one of the top players in all the sport in the years to come. But give it up for Tampa as of right now. That was a shrewd move, smart move. And what could you say? Good for them as they get their prize prospect in the fold for at least 11 years. Other than that, Give it up to the race too. They signed Corey Kluber to a one-year deal. Eight years, or excuse me, eight years. Eight million dollars could be an upwards of 13 based on incentives. Also, Kevin Gossman, five years, 110 million with Toronto. Man. Zach Wheeler signed a five-year, $118 million contract. And is Kevin Gossman in the stratosphere of Zach Wheeler? And listen, I'm not trying to make Zach Wheeler out to be Kurt Schilling. I mean, come on, let's not get crazy. But Wheeler at least has a resume. Gossman, this guy's been a journeyman pitcher and had one or two good years, and now he parlays that into a $110 million contract. So you already know, speaking of baselines, as we talked about before with Simeon and Baez, Stroman, you know that's going to be the minimum right there. Kendall Graveman fortifies that White Sox bullpen, three years, $24 million to go with Liam Hendricks and... I'm not in White Sox mode, but that bullpen gets a big boost for the team that plays on the south side. And then also, Byron Buxton of the Twins signs a $100 million extension. So at least they keep one of their homegrown players for the years to come. But now as we get to Wednesday, and what does this mean for free agency after midnight, December 1st? The question is, I could see it coming to a screeching halt. Because remember, some of these players that have been signed, yes, they've been signed to big contracts, but the majority of them have been pitchers. Simeon has been the first guy out of the position players that has received a big payday. What does this mean for Corey Seager? What does this mean for Trevor Story, Javier Baez, Carlos Correa? Are they going to get these big-time contracts here over the course of the next 36 to 40 hours? I don't know. Would I be shocked? I can't say I'd be shocked based on the activity up until this point. But if Simeon was the first domino to fall, then you would think the rest would follow. But I don't know. There have not been any reports other than the Tigers speaking to Baez. I haven't heard anything as far as Correa. Yeah, you could talk about that breakfast he had with A.J. Hinch, but big whoop. So what? That doesn't mean anything. Or Trevor Story. 
Corey Seager. Who knows? But I will say this. If these guys do not sign on the dotted line by Wednesday, they may be waiting a long time before they even get to sign because unless a CBA comes by December 15th or even by the new year, then perhaps. But these guys are going to sit out and wait to get their big bucks. And if it's not going to happen in the next day or so, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon after that. Fascinating how baseball has really been active here considering that a lockout is imminent. And one last thing before I continue, I have to say that very shocked about the Yankees, but you know Brian Cashman has an ace or two up his sleeve. Because with all this activity by the Mets here in the last few days, and especially with Scherzer, and maybe he coming to Queens, you know that whether it's Correa to play short, or even Corey Seager for that matter, because they want to get that left-handed bat. I'm sure they're going to have a pitcher that may be in the wings that they're going to deal with, or deal for, I should say. Because remember, they made some moves on their roster to get rid of Clint Frazier, Ronette Odor, Tyler Wade. All right, those are small potatoes in the grand scheme of things, but they open up roster spots. And on top of that, they have pieces that they could trade. Miguel Andujar, maybe even Gleyber Torres, Gary Sanchez, which you may only get a bag of baseballs for, but still, that's an interesting chip. Luke Voigt, you want to throw in some of their younger prospects, Esteban Floreal, the outfielder. Yankees, they could certainly upend this whole offseason with some blockbuster moves. And we know the Yankees have to be in win mode now. I get it. You could say that every year if you're in pinstripes and in the South Bronx. But A, knowing that the Mets have stolen some of the back pages on the baseball front, and on top of that, with all the chips that they have that they could trade and bring back young arms or big bats, whatever it may be, you know that that's coming on the horizon. But who knows? Midnight, December 1st, that could throw a considerable wrinkle into this whole thing. Which, crazily enough, makes this offseason compelling in that regard. And you know I'm going to be all over this, considering that all these big-time free agents are out there, and I'm sure a lot of players that are under the radar that we don't even know that are part of a trade rumor, that they could be coming east, north, south, wherever, as the baseball offseason is in full bloom. And real quick, I know that the Hall of Fame, speaking now with baseball, your first time entries on the ballot, David Ortiz, Alex Rodriguez. I think Ortiz is going to make it on his first ballot. We could talk about the test, going back to that report, New York Times with the Failed test from David Ortiz, but again, it wasn't proven, it wasn't put out there, etc. All that, which I'm not going to dredge up right now, but Ortiz has been such a good guy. We know the numbers and everything that he's put up over his career. I would, And even though he's a DH, but I could see him being a first ballot Hall of Famer because when we look at this list, this is the last go-around for Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, and 
Roger Clemens. And as we've seen, Bonds and Clemens have gotten closer, and even Sterling for that matter, in the vote to where now they're in the 60s and we all know they have to get at least 75% in order to be enshrined in Cooperstown. So this is it. And we're not going to find out until the second week of January or somewhere around that time. So I bring that up only to mention that once we get into January and when the announcements are made, will these players who are Hall of Famers as we know, but considering Bonds and Clemens with steroids and Schilling, I could care less about his political views, but we know he's very outspoken and that has rubbed the writers the wrong way. So who knows? Maybe they'll look at that and not vote him in. Remains to be seen, but... Just thought to throw that out there. A-Rod's not going to be anywhere close. Who knows how many votes he's going to get. If I'm going to take a guess. I'd be shocked if he gets 25% of the vote. He's probably going to get somewhere between 15 and 20. If he gets lower, ooh, that shows how much the writers didn't like him. And not only that, but the whole steroid issues over the years. But yeah, if he, if he gets, I'll say 20. 25 I think is a little bit high. If he gets 20% of the vote, I think that's the ceiling. Somewhere between 10 and 20, I think, is where A-Rod will fall as far as his vote on the ballot for the first time to be inducted into Cooperstown. All right, now to turn my attention to the association, and not really much to speak of here when it comes to the NBA, as we're now a quarter into the season for most teams as they played 20 or so games I know the Brooklyn Nets 14 and 6. When we look at the East, it's interesting. Do you know that the top 13 teams, and obviously Detroit and Orlando, you can forget about this year, but they're separated by six games. Now, of course, there'll be some separation along the way. This isn't anything to be alarmed or to really say, oh, wow, the parody in the NBA, because we'll see the cream rising to the top a little bit. But with the way the East has been and how they've pretty much been Tooth and nail, neck and neck, not a lot of separation when you look, especially among the top six, because they're only separated by two games, and that would be Brooklyn, Miami, Washington, Milwaukee, Chicago, and Charlotte, and Milwaukee being the hottest team in the East right now as they won seven in a row, but the story in the NBA granted the Golden State Warriors, and what the hell was I thinking of picking them as an under this year, but the Phoenix Suns, who just came off of a back-to-back here at the Garden and Barclays Center over the weekend to where they've now won 16 games in a row. 16. They've been on fire. They've been nipping at the Warriors' heels. And to think this team started off 1-3, and and now they are just a game behind the top spot in the Western Conference. Because other than that, like I said, you haven't really had much to discuss. All right, Joel Embiid came back against Minnesota where he got 42-14 and in a loss, double overtime. But now that Embiid is back in the fold, you would think that the Sixers will try to get on track and get themselves back to the top of the Eastern Conference. The Lakers, they played Detroit yesterday, so there was no fallout from the Isaiah Stewart incident the week prior to where Stewart received two games, LeBron got a one-game suspension, and then also was fined for a gesture when he served the suspension against the Knicks last Tuesday, but against Indiana, barking and screaming on the court. And then not only that, but also a fan getting involved to where they started to call him the snitch. He got him ejected, whatever. He couldn't take the heat from one of the hecklers there 
at courtside, please. I could care less about that. But you didn't have any fallout from that incident as the Lakers hosted the Pistons last night and the Lakers were victorious to where tonight you have Denver playing in Miami. And if we recall, Nikola Jokic hitting the one of the Morris brothers, Markeef, and you had that Twitter war between Jokic's brothers and the Markeef, Morris tandem, and Marcus, of course, to where they said that, oh, when we see you, we'll settle this outside. And I'm paraphrasing. Who knows if there's going to be any retribution from Morris to Jokic tonight in Miami. And the Nuggets have struggled here to where they're at the bottom of the Western Conference as far as the top 10 goes. So the Nuggets are looking to get themselves straightened out as they take a trip down to Florida to play not only Miami tonight, but then Orlando on Wednesday before they play the Knicks this weekend at the Garden on Saturday. But other than that, you really haven't had a lot to discuss here or really sink your teeth into when it comes to the NBA. I know you had John Morant suffer that knee injury against Atlanta where it's not serious, no structural or ligament damage, so good for the Grizzlies, for their young star guard. Kevin Durant passing Allen Iverson for 25th all-time, the NBA scoring list. AI was a big influence, him growing up there in PG County outside of Baltimore. So kudos to KD. The Bucks signing DeMarcus Cousins, whatever he has left, now he's part of the Bucks. And then you have a name change for Ennis Cantor. He's going to be Ennis Cantor Freedom. We know he's been very outspoken about all that's gone on in the world, especially his reason where he's from in Turkey. So he's put that out there to have it be his last name. So I'm sure you're going to see the last name on his jersey, as we saw years ago with Ron Artest, Meta World Peace. So... You got that to hang your hat on if you want to talk about in the Twitter universe or just in NBA circles as far as what's going on there. Now to the, I'll get to college basketball real quick, only because we'll stick with the hoop segment here. Because real quick with college basketball, and I can't believe I'm actually talking about this as we're literally, what, three weeks into a college basketball season, maybe even less than that. And here I am. It's not even December. And I'm talking college hoops. But you had a one versus two last week with Gonzaga and UCLA. But as much as that was billed as the rematch from the epic Final Four game, the semifinal to where Gonzaga at the buzzer, we all remember the Jalen Suggs three-pointer. Well, that wasn't a carbon copy of what we saw there in April as Gonzaga blitzed UCLA in the first half. They ended up winning by 20 in the game, Chet Holmgren is the guy that everybody's looking at Gonzaga, I believe seven-footer, who was making his way down the court, slashing, dashing, dunking all over UCLA. But then just a few days later, the Duke Blue Devils said, uh-uh, to the Bulldogs and their early season success as they won a tight 84-81 game. And I know a lot of the story, Paolo Bonchero, he got caught there with a, I believe a DUI, but had an incident there to where he was with Coach K's grandson. So that wasn't a good optic to say the least, but Bonchero's a guy that could be a major player, not only here for Duke, but possibly into the tournament and maybe his stock going north as far as being one of the top picks in the NBA draft for next year. So Duke was able to thwart Gonzaga and what they did to UCLA just a couple of days prior. What was that, last Tuesday night? And Gonzaga doesn't have to worry about having to go undefeated as they did for most of last year before getting their first loss going into the tournament. 
But with that being said, college basketball has putting themselves on the radar here, which is very good for that matter because, as we all know, college basketball is a far cry from what it once was, and I don't talk about it until we get to March, or let's say late February once the Super Bowl has come and gone, but college basketball has now become archaic in that regard to where you can't really rally around some of these teams. There's not a bunch of tremendous storylines when we're talking about the regular season, we all wait for the tournament. We wait for March Madness. That's what it's all about, that three-week tournament that everybody is enamored and fascinated and riveted by. But just knowing that they're getting a little bit of shine here at the start, and as I said, we haven't even turned the calendar to the last month of the year. And I've talked about a couple of things, including how Kansas lost to Dayton at the buzzer there. And even though they righted the ship by beating St. John's, but for... Kansas to lose to the Dayton Flyers is newsworthy in its own right, even if it is November the 29th. But just knowing that Kansas had lost to a team that is of much lesser competition, and even though Dayton is competitive, and it's not to say that there's some two-bit administration that can't put together a basketball team, but hey, give them credit. Big win for them. But with college basketball now getting part of our conscious here and just knowing that there's been some games of note and also to make their way into the discussion on the podcast early on says a lot. I hope that it continues to pace that way, similar to what we've experienced with college football this year. But if I had to make an early prediction, I don't think that's going to be the case. But that's just me. All right, let me get to the NHL real quick because what we've seen here with the Islanders, and I know I touched on it last week, they finally opened their building to where they came into the UBS Arena losing four in a row, and then they lost back-to-back games last weekend to Calgary and to the Toronto Maple Leafs. And then now, as the four-game homestand continued, they lose Wednesday night to the Rangers before Thanksgiving and then get shut out again to the Pittsburgh Penguins, to where it all culminated to where eight players have come down with COVID. So they had to reschedule the Ranger game, which would have taken place at the Garden last night, and then the Flyers down in Philadelphia tomorrow, where it has not been rescheduled as of right now. But the Islanders, you have to wonder. When we take a look at the standings and see what is shaping up here, they have dug themselves a hole that may, may, be too tough to get out of. They're at the bottom of the Metropolitan Division, and granted that they have games in hand with a bunch of teams in the division, for instance, the Capitals have five games ahead of the Islanders. And a lot of that has to do with the start of the year, going 13 games on the road, spacing those out to where they could give the Islanders a blow in between. But you have to ask yourself, this stretch here where they've now lost eight in a row, They have this respite here due to COVID. Is this a blessing or a curse for this franchise? I'm going to say right now, and it's very tough to predict, but I'm going to say it is a good time for them to regroup because now they could try to get healthy. I'm sure they're going to go back to the drawing board if they haven't done so already. And that's not to say they're going to run off six games, eight games, or a streak of... 10 of the next 13. 
But this kind of puts a pause on everything that's gone on here the first almost two months of the season. To where they can now take a big, giant, collective inhale and then exhale these first 17 games and say, all right, our season begins now. That's not to diminish or to negate what has taken place in the first 17. But hopefully with Barry Trotz, the coach of this team, and know that the philosophy is the same, defense first, they got to get some goal scoring because think about this. They've played more games at home than the amount of goals that they scored at home during this four-game homestand. They got shut out by Toronto. They got shut out by Pittsburgh. And they scored two game, two goals against Calgary in their home opener and one against the Rangers there on Wednesday night. So the only direction they could go right now is up. And who knows when they're going to be back as far as playing games. Their next schedule game after tomorrow is against San Jose on Thursday night. And right now it is on. It is scheduled, and San Jose, it's, that could be a tough game to reschedule. It's easy to look at the Rangers or even the Flyers, for that matter. Obviously, they're divisional foes. They can reschedule those games either up the turnpike or right across pretty much the Queens Midtown Tunnel. But for San Jose to come back this way, and I believe they already played the Devils, And they may be on an East Coast swing right now, but we'll see if they'll get that game in Thursday night at the UBS Arena. But other than that, Alexander Ovechkin is continuing his masterful start to his year. He just had a hat trick there yesterday, and the machine just keeps on going. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, how his march to get to 894, Wayne Gretzky, which is still a couple years down the road, But again, he is not slowing down by any stretch, and kudos to him. But when we take a lay of the land at the NHL, pretty much everything has been status quo. Not much has changed. Although Toronto has now taken a step ahead of the Florida Panthers in the Atlantic, but just by the slimmest of margins, two points. And same for the Metropolitan, where the Capitals are now in first place, where Carolina had gotten off to that hot start, but they've cooled considerably. And then out west, it's pretty much the same. I know Edmonton and Calgary, that looks like that could be a barn burner of a race as they're separated by one point where Edmonton's in first, Calgary in second in the Pacific, and the Wild hold the top spot out west. But other than that, with the NHL, a couple of other news and notes. The Canadians, no surprise, Even with a Stanley Cup trip last year, they have certainly hit hard times this early part of the season. So they fired Mark Bergevin, their GM, and it comes on the heels of assistant GM Scott Mellenby saying, the heck with this, I want out. He just resigned out of the blue. No reasons why. He's figured, "Uh uh-uh, I need to be out. Is there anything deeper than what's going on in the front office or with the players? Who knows with the way the temperament is especially not only just in corporate America or just in the world I could say when it comes to maybe some controversy I'm not trying to say that there is with the Canadians but you got to wonder if Mellenby jumped ship and said the heck with this I'm out of here and for the Habs to fire Bergevin maybe there's something more than just letting go of their front office or the guy that runs the team maybe there's some other things that are going on that's unbeknownst to 
the hockey public. So we'll keep our fingers on the pulse with that. If anything ugly, and not to say that there is, but you got to wonder, there must be something else that's going on up there that we certainly don't know about. And then Evander Kane, who we've talked about in weeks past, and him having an offseason that he would certainly like to forget, whether it's his ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife, saying that he had bet on his own team when it comes to gambling, some domestic issues off the ice, fake vaccination cards. Well, he is now a free agent as he's been waived by the San Jose Sharks. I don't know who's going to want to take on that baggage right now. Even the Islanders, who are desperate for offense. And not to say Evander Kane is going to come in here and light up the lamp like Pavel Bure, but even with him being a free agent right now and looking to latch on to the next team, I don't know who's going to be willing to take on everything that's happened with him over the last 8 to 12 months. So good luck to an organization. I don't know if Lou Lamorello will even entertain the thought, but who knows? The Islanders are grasping for straws right now, so any reinforcements would help. But let's see where Evander Kane goes considering what he has had to endure, whether self-inflicted or not, over the last year. And then finally, did anybody watch this Bryson DeChambeau-Brooks Kepka match on Friday? Neither did I. I'm sure there was about five of you that did, or the die-in-the-wool golf fan had to tune in, but... All I'll say is that Kepka got the best of DeChambeau, but to me, it wasn't even about the match. It was the stuff that happened in the post-match as far as the comments that were thrown around to where, and Kepka won decisively against DeChambeau to where Kepka came out and quipped how he wanted to spank DeChambeau in this little charity match and where Bryson said in his presser, he touched by saying, well, I haven't played in two months. And even though he said that's not an excuse, but a little back and forth between two heated and very disliked rivals. If you recall a couple of months ago with the Ryder Cup, as the U.S. finally beat Europe after all these years, and Justin Thomas having to tell his brethren, DeChambeau and Kepka to hug it out after the U.S. finally got their victory and their bragging rights for the next three years. So even with that, even with that little kiss and make up, there just a couple of months ago how it looks like they're back to being adversaries at best and is it something to watch moving forward obviously the golf season has concluded this is something that we'll probably have to pay attention come turn of the calendar year at some of the early events before we even get to April in the Masters but for what it's worth a little banter back and forth there at the end of the match and Kepka. He has bragging rights, at least for now. So I just figured to throw that out there for the golf fans just to get their appetite whetted when it comes to what goes on in the greens. So let me wrap up, people. My hero in Zero of the Week, as I always do to close out. My hero of the week goes to Saints players Alvin Kamara and Cameron Jordan for surprising shoppers on Wednesday with a Thanksgiving giveaway in which they bagged groceries, mingled with the fans, gave back to the community along with a couple of other entrepreneurs, restaurateurs from the area to total $21,000 that was spent by not only the same players, but of course some of these local businesses and entrepreneurs as I mentioned. A gracious gesture during this time of year, which is a story that never gets old, 
It's always great to see guys, especially the athletes, go above and beyond to help those in need, especially during this holiday season. So they get my Hero of the Week. And my Zero of the Week goes to LA Kings winger Brandon Lemieux for biting the hand of Senators forward Brady Kachuk Saturday night between Ottawa and the LA Kings. They got into an altercation. They've gotten to some scraps in the past. But after a big scrum to where they fell to the ice, and then as Kachuk is getting up off the ice, he has to show the refs and actually get into it with them to show how he had blood on his hand because Lemieux actually bit it at the bottom of the scrum. Uh, Can you even make this up? Is this what the NHL has come to? I get it's an isolated incident. I get you rarely see displays like that with players. Usually it's cheap shots, whether it's with sticks, with elbows, etc. But a biting of the hand? Really? Brendan Lemieux? Come on. You're better than that. So front and center, right at the very top, you, my guy, are my zero of the week. That'll do it. Episode 226, just about in the books. But before I say goodbye... You know I have to give credit to you guys and gals for sticking with me, for paying attention to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. And your contribution is not only vital, but it certainly does not go unnoticed. So I appreciate you knowing that you could get your source of sports from anybody out there. Not only from somebody like myself, the independent operation that I am, but of course from the Television networks, radio networks, other podcasts, etc. You know I don't take your contribution and your participation for granted. And as I said at the top, if you can, if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast just to increase that visibility to get it up there so those out there will know who I am and what it is that I do. So throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it. Also, you can hit me up on any of my social media accounts with a question, comment, criticism, or praise. DM me at JReels or the JReels Podcast on Instagram, the JReels Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, JReels1, just a number, and the old fashioned way, the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be sure to follow up ASAP. And then also, if you want to contribute to this podcast, which I would sincerely appreciate, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to contribute, that will go a long way in getting this podcast not only out to as many people as possible, the upkeep of the website, this production overall, equipment, etc. Because whether you do or do not know people, this is what I love to do. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA. I've been talking sports pretty much since birth. And I will continue to do so as long as the good Lord has me on his beautiful green planet because sharing my thoughts, opinions, analysis, hot takes, whatever it may be, as objective, unbiased as you could possibly get anywhere when it comes to the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J-Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.